Today we continue our series of messages about living out loud. And today is going to be about choosing an approach that fits you. And as we know often during this particular hour, a lot of new people may come and come visit and have a chance to, uh, this may be your first time even. And you may look at the bulletin, you see this uh, graphic and say, what is that all about? Well, I think it's fair that we just spend a little bit of time catching you up. Now, there's two ways to do that. Catching you up from the standpoint of what is this series about, about what it means to live out loud as a Christian. And as Grace Fellowship, we do not see this as something where we're coming along beating people over the head with the Bible, but truly learning to tell others about the reason for our hope. But there is a second catch-up, and that second catch-up really applies to everybody in this fellowship, everybody that's a part of Grace Fellowship. Uh, And it's this broader look about these four key things that impact us. Four key things that we have with almost laser focus. Now, I'm not going to talk about those today, but you may have come to Grace for a long time and you've never chosen to connect and identify with this body. You just attend, you come and you get fed and you get used to it. But this four things that we focus on about good orthodox teaching, small groups, we talk a lot about small groups, that we're a church not just of small groups, uh, not just a church that does small groups, that we're a church of small groups. And you say, oh, Brian, that's cute vernacular, but really that's who we are. I mean, you're going to notice that a lot of churches that you might visit that have almost 2,000 people Worshiping on any given Sunday, more than 1,500 this morning at this location, about 300 at our uh, Fort Thomas location. Your, uh, your inclination based upon your experience with church was, where's the Christian Life Center? Well, I want you to know you're sitting in it. Did you know that? This is a multi-use room. And a lot of churches have that, and there's nothing wrong with that. But you don't find that here. Why is that? Well, this is my pitch to go to Grace for you. You want to understand a little bit more about what's distinctive about Grace. As Peter said, it obligates you to nothing. You can go ask questions. What do we really believe? Why do we believe it? And it's appropriate that here, that when we talk about this simple mission of gathering, growing, and going... And embracing this vision that God would raise up a generation of Christians that have the courage to stand, confidence to speak, and have a heart to sacrifice because they're committed to the truth of God's word, the mission of God's church, and the mercy of God's son, Jesus Christ. And that mercy is most visibly seen in the death of his son, Jesus Christ, in the gospel, that that means something significant here. Now that catch-up... For all of us who are used to being at grace also means that there are some things that happen. When you are a church that holds high orthodox teaching, you expect to come on Sunday morning and hear Pastor Brad as he so eloquently does feed. And the rest of us, as we have the opportunity to also feed, you expect a certain standard of teaching. Holding high God's word as truth. And making it applicable to to life. But what happens for everybody that sits here, whether you're going to a church with multiple programs or a simple church formula, more like us, four key things, there are are things that happen called unintended consequences that I'm going to refer to this morning. And our church, as wonderful and magnificent as it is, we have some unintended Intended consequences that has happened among us. And that unintended consequences goes like this. We have a big view of God and we love a big God who is limiting, ordering, and controlling all things. And you say, well, Brian, what's the, the unintended consequence of that? It's this. When you come and sit and you listen and you anticipate getting fed and you go out of here because your week has been crazy and you get fed for your coming week, what often happens is this. Christian, you forget what it's like 
to wake up this morning with a God-sized hole in your life. You've forgotten what it's like. You don't know what it's like to feel empty. You don't know what it's like to feel hopeless. You don't know what it's like to not have a life that's anything other than, where am I going to travel? What entertainment will I have this week? Will my team win? What is my next promotion? What is my next relationship? That becomes the sum of what life is. Life all becomes about what's here and now. And this series was meant to be a good reminder to all of us that God intends us to be potent, that time with Him and proximity to other believers up close and us speaking or proclaiming to others, that's what leads to maximum impact. And God intends us to have maximum impact. You say, Brian, well, I understand that. I've heard it. I know Brad's talking about it. And that all sounds good, but the chief problem with me is this nagging guilt that I have, this anxiety, and how in the world do I really do this? How do I really get started? How do I do this? And some of you have this low-level thing of guilt, and the other one, uh, others of us have this high-level anxiety. I recently spoke to a young man, strapping, strong, he can run through a wall. He says, every time I walk through an airport, I get that feeling. I'm getting on a plane, I'm not Brad, and I become this other person. He said, you have no idea what I look like, what I sound like. He says, but I really do. I sit down and I think, oh no, somebody's going to be parked beside me and I'm supposed to talk about Jesus. And this is really kind of the way he says he feels. I felt just like that. Whether it's talking to your first pretty girl or talking to somebody about Jesus that you know, it's the way it feels sometimes for some of us. We don't know what it's like. And I tell you, I have traveled extensively for the company I worked for before. And when, when uh, business people travel, inevitably, one of the things that happens is you ask each other questions, you know, just as polite, well, what do you do for a living? And when other people find out, you know, that you were in housing, large housing, in the midst of a recession that was honestly triggered by housing, and they look at you and say, how in the world are you surviving I would respond, well, that's a great question. It's just a conversation. That's a great question. And I would say, it's not the typical answer you might expect to hear. You mind if I tell you a little bit more about what really makes a difference for me? And I remember having this conversation. The last trip I took, I had this conversation with a guy. You mind if I tell you a little bit about what the difference made for me? See, I don't think I could deal with it if it were not for my personal walk with God. And I never forget, I said this to this guy. He looked at me and he said, I'd love to talk to you. He said, I got to go to the restroom. He said, I'll be back. I'll be back. He never came back. (laughs) He cornered a stewardess and begged her to set him somewhere else or a flight attendant. What happens with all of us, though, is that we lose sight. And I... I am almost sure that you've lost sight, that you've been placed here by God. Not as happenstance, but among the 7 billion humans on the earth right now, your arrival was planned. The timing, the location, and the circumstance. Your genetic makeup is unique among all of creation, and you're going to walk in places and talk with people and do things that no one else will do just as you would do it. You are fearfully and wonderfully made, Psalm 139.14 says. You have purpose. Some of you who hold that high orthodox teaching that we adhere to here and know that we talk a whole lot about it's not all about us. You say, well, Brian, you're just pumping sunshine this morning. 
But that's inconsistent with the balance of Scripture. The truth is you are unique. And you are uniquely placed here to glorify Him. The passage of Scripture that we look at in... um, uh, we looked at in the beginning of the last couple of messages, Matthew five sixteen, Jesus said, in the same way, let your light so shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And then the Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he said, he's posing this question to the church at Corinth because their temptation was to identify with a personality whether it be Paul or Apollos. They say, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos. He said, what then is Paul? What is Apollos? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Paul saw himself as an active participant in introducing other people to Jesus. And he saw Apollos doing that too. And he saw Apollos coming behind him or in front of him. And they built on together. Some of you do not know that God intended you truly to live in such a way that you're planting seeds. You're talking about the difference that Jesus makes. So how is it? How is it that you can get started? You may wonder, Brian... Let's get practical. What's the Bible say about what's the right approach? What does God's word really lay out? Well, I'm going to give you two things today. Two biblical themes that we're just going to hit on. And you can read more about. In fact, you'll find in your outline in the bulletin, there's some resources that you can get and read more about these things. And we're going to unpack some of it. But the two things is this. It's the personality principle and the people principle. Personality and people. And your inclination may be, well, Brian, wouldn't you put people and then talk about personality? Well, you could. But I'm going to save the people part to the end because of a particular thing. And if I say one more P, I'm going to get all tied up here. All right? I believe God's Word shows us at least six different personalities on display on how you can share the gospel. And one of these personalities is actually you. It's more like you, and none of you will be purely one thing, but you are fit for something. So let's talk about these personality principles. Number one is this, and I have carefully worded this item, this point that I want you to look at. You will start to make an impact when you choose to be the gospel witness God designed you to be. You will start to make an impact when you choose to be the gospel witness God designed you to be. There's an emphasis you will see even on the screen. Start and you. Yeah, folks, this is really about you. This is about God giving you life and new life in Jesus. And his intention is that you're going to live out loud. God designed you. Now, before you start down that road, that easy, slippery road of guilt, this is not a place for guilt. But you need to start with where you are. You either are speaking and possibly not speaking as you would speak, or you're not speaking at all. And I love how our pastor of Preaching and Vision, how Brad has given us this wonderful image of running it up the flagpole. I'll never look at flagpoles the same again. Running it up a flagpole. I mean, he dances when he does it. (laughs) Running it up the flagpole. But I also know some of the background of this, about how when he gets on a plane, how God had given him the burden to meet people and share Jesus for his glory. Not because his personality is just bent that way. But he knew that God lived in him. And he needed to start with him. Some of us have been fooled into believing that God will save them. And when you hold high orthodox teaching about God's sovereignty and God's control. 
it's very easy to drift over here and say, well, if they're going to get saved, God's going to save them. Well, the reality is this. God has placed you to be an ambassador. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20. I love that passage from the New Living Translation. Just listen. Paul said, and he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So that we are Christ, what is it? Ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. Those of us who have known the, the amazing things that God has done with us here at Grace Fellowship, it's easy for us to lose sight that there's a balance in Scripture. The Bible teaches that God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are taught in the same Bible, sometimes indeed in the same text. That's what J.I. Packer said. But when you're in a part of a church that embraces the sovereignty of God, it's quick for us to assume, well, God, he takes it upon himself to do the saving. And yes, God is the only one who does the changing of a heart. but he uses personalities that are sitting in this room. Believer in Jesus, out of the overflow of what Christ has done in you, you are to be a witness. People hear about Jesus and respond to him through you. All throughout Scripture, this is the model. God sends personalities among people. Let me give you, let's go back to the Old Testament. Some of you know the story of Moses. Goes up on a mountain, tending sheep. Can you imagine Moses that day when the burning bush is on fire? An amazing encounter with God. The bush is on fire. It's not consumed. He goes back down to the tent that evening. Sees his wife, Sephora, and says, Honey, wow, what a day it was. I was reading this blog. God's doing amazing things. God says he's going to deliver the people from Egypt. He's going to be active. He's doing something. It's an exciting time to be alive. And some of us, that's the way we live. We live between journal articles and blogs and reading our scripture and never realizing that God has distinctly put his hands on your life and says, I'm sending you back to Egypt. I'm sending you. And there's no one-size-fits-all, folks. Because I know in this room there's personalities that are really good at you are just as friendly as a dog. And some of you are a whole lot like cats. And that's okay. It's a beautiful thing. But all of us have personality. Not of all of you are meant to be Brad Bigney or Brian Fannin or Ryan Fultz or Cindy Malott. These personalities are laid out in the scripture. So I want to spend just a few, few moments and talk to you about these different personalities that you can see and you can read about. First of all, there's this direct approach. The direct approach is probably most clearly seen in Peter. Peter in Matthew chapter 16, in the gospel witness, Peter was the first guy when Jesus says, well, who do... Who do you say that I am? Well, they say, well, some are saying you're so-and-so, and some of you say you're a prophet. And Jesus said, no, wait, I want to know who you say that I am. And Peter says, I know who you are. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter was that guy who was first to weigh in. He was convinced what he knew, and he knew what he knew, and he was not going to hold back. He was also that guy that found himself just steps from his Lord after Jesus' arrest. The same guy that said, I will never deny you, just steps from his Lord saying, I don't even know who he is. He knew the failure and he knew boldness. But on, on, in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, not the same guy. He stands up and says to those who are in witness, he says, This Jesus, you killed him, 
You put him to death. God had a plan. He paid the price for sin and resurrected him from the dead. And you need to repent of your sin. Bold, courageous, direct. Peter is the ready, aim, shoot. See the target, hit the target. That's Peter. That may not be you. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you will be that. In fact, I want to give caution to those of you who sit in this room right now and you can feel your batteries charging. That's me. You're the one that first one to speak up. And if you don't speak, you're doing it in your mind. You got to be careful with this personality. You need to remember that this personality is the same guy that speaks up. Hallelujah. He's also the guy that gets his foot in his mouth all the time. He was a man that knew grace. If you look at the, the writings of Peter, he was a man that was transformed by grace through his life. Great tenderness, great gentleness, very bold, very direct. But he also knew he was a recipient of grace. Is that you? Do you remember that? Do you give grace? Do you give grace as much as you give boldness? If you walk around with a club or your Bible and you're hitting head people in the head with it, that's not Peter. Peter was bold, but he was gracious. Maybe that's you. God wants you to be you. Then there's Paul. How about Paul? Maybe you're like Paul. Maybe you are what we will call the intellectual approach. Paul was a man who loved to learn, and he was learned. He was the Ph.D. on many fronts. He studied and he longed to learn more of the truth of God, his nature, about our sin and God's solution. He was adept at laying it out. And in Acts chapter 17, we find him in the most learned city talking with philosophers laying out an apologetic to the skeptical philosopher. And if you read the story in Acts chapter 17, not everyone believed, but some believed. Some of, him, some of them called him a babbler. But he, he made the argument. Do you like to dialogue and discuss? So many seekers which is a word that we dodge. I don't know why. I want people who are seeking. I want people who are wondering. I want people who have questions. I want people who are honest doubters. I want them to come with their questions because I know Jesus has answers. See, guys who work with ideas and like to dialogue and discuss, notice this is not debate. This is dialogue and discuss. Maybe you're the person that knows that there is a message more than turn and burn. Turn or burn. If, that's, that, if you say, there's something about that, I just, it's just not me. Well, then you're more, maybe more like Paul. Maybe you're that person that knows... That Jesus' claims about who he was and what he did can be defended and make sense to the heart that's longing for truth. Guys like Ravi Zacharias and Lee Strobel are examples of this kind of witness. Reason and logic will hold up under scrutiny. Did you know that? And I love this approach. I'm certainly no intellectual giant. But I've seen God use this in my own life. Dialogue and discuss with others. In fact, uh, I have a relative that many years ago, she was an attorney by training, very, very bright. She was an arguer. And I remember this encounter with her, what it felt like. I I thought about it even again this morning, of what it was like when she looked at me and she said, I've traveled all over the world. I have reason to believe that the world has many, many problems And Christianity just has no answers for. And immediately I'm like, whoa, you know, on my heels. And you know what that feels like? People try to put you on your heels. 
So I'll tell you what my experience was in that. And maybe some of you who sit in this room today are kind of like this relative of mine. You have doubts. You wonder. Or you've just already assumed there is no God and there are no answers. So this is what I posed to her. I said, do you believe your knowledge is limited? Now, let me illustrate what this means. Some of you may be well-read, deeply read. But I would argue that your knowledge is limited. My guess is right at this moment, you could not tell me every name of every person that sits in this room. True? Nor could you tell me how many cars have passed by out front this morning while you sat in this room or how many airplanes landed at the airport. That by very reason would say your knowledge is limited. You have limited understanding of what's going on. And would it not be fair to say that if you were honest, that you probably know less than half of everything there is to know? Would you not say that's fair? And so I asked this question of her. Would it not be fair to say that you, you know less than half of all there is to know? Well, she had to say yes because she's an attorney. I already knew the answer. Now she knew the answer. So I said to her, so based upon that, it sounds like really you're more like a doubter. There's things that you doubt. Would you consider yourself a doubter? You doubt if Christianity has answers, if Jesus is really the answer. And she said, yeah. And I said, well, that's great. Doubters come in two classes. And there are two classes of doubters that sit in this room. There's honest doubters and there's dishonest doubters. Let's start with the dishonest one. The dishonest doubter is the person that sits and says, I don't know everything. And I'd like to know truth. But what I do with it, I'll determine after I hear it. There's conviction that there's truth, but you just kind of decide what you're going to do with it. That's a dishonest doubter. An honest doubter is a person that says, I don't know, but I want to know. And if I'm shown the truth and I come to understand it as truth, I'll embrace it with my whole life. And I asked her, I said, which one do you think you are? Now notice, I didn't say, I think you're a dishonest doubter. I said, which one are you? I'm dialoguing. Some of us could learn a great deal by being interested. Quit trying to be interesting. Be interested in other people. Don't just try to be interesting. So I said, which one are you? She says, well, I think that I'm an honest doubter. So I'd like you to take your Bible, if you brought it with me, and turn to John chapter 7. I told her, I said, do you know that there's a promise in the Bible for an honest doubter? A person that says, I don't know, but I want to know. There is a promise in John chapter 7. And you find it in verses 16 and 17. And for the honest doubter that sits in this room, I will make the same challenge that I made to my relative. I will make to you. Jesus says in verse 16, as he's talking to those who doubted, he said, he answered them. He says, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. He's talking about his father, God. If anyone, anyone wills to know God's will, or the ESV says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, if you desire to do it, you, you want to know the truth and you'll embrace it. Jesus said, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. In other words, Jesus said, he'll know whether it's from God or if I'm just making up my own story. So I made this challenge to her, same challenge I'll make to you. Will you read the Gospel of John? And whether you believe there's a God or not, you just make this your prayer. God, if you're there, please show me yourself.
please reveal yourself to me. Now, I did this, but it just shows you how my unbelief works. When she called me two weeks later and she said, I've read this book over and over again. She said, I'm amazed. I didn't know that this is really who Jesus was. Can you meet with me and talk with me more? And she was magnificently converted. Because she started from a standpoint of honest doubt. This is Paul's approach. This is what he did in Acts chapter 17. When he finds in Athens those that says to an unknown God, this monument to an unknown God, he dialogued with them. Not all of them were converted, but some were. Then there's this third approach, this approach that I will call the testimonial approach. And it's exhibited in John chapter 9. This is about a blind man. And this blind man had been blind from birth. Now just think about that. All of us, symbolically, whether you can see me or not, there's part of you that's blind from birth. You don't see all there is about God. Now there is this part of us that knows he's there. But this man was literally blind. And as the story shows, Jesus comes along and he gives him the gift of sight. And the crowd was hostile because it was full of religious people that could not believe that he regained his sight. Nor could they believe that something good could happen on the Sabbath. It just so happened that Jesus went to work on the Sabbath. And he healed somebody. And it's an interesting story the blind man did not get into a theological debate that the religious rulers are trying to pull him into. An argument of philosophy about what was good and when it could be done. The blind man would not bite. His answer was this. I don't know what to tell you. But I do know this. He changed my life. I was blind. I now see. And it was Christ who did it. It was Jesus. See, some of your personalities in this room, you know that you're never going to be that guy that's going to have all the arguments laid out. You're never going to have it all in a nice, neat bow. You won't have all the answers that people will pose. And this is a subtle lie of the enemy that he comes along and sows in your life and says, you'll never be a witness. You'll never be good at that. You can't do that. The reality is you just need to go tell people the difference that Jesus has made in your life. Which brings us to an important clarification. Can you tell the difference that Christ has made in your life? Or is it all up here? Just religious fluff. In fact, one of the great temptations that we all face who've attended church our whole life is to sit and to listen and to get fed. And you get these nice little applications that get you through the week. And you never really realize, I'm I'm not really identifying with all these people that talk about following Jesus. What you identify with is good moral lessons, a belief in God, and Jesus was special. And see, here though, this mission we talk about of the courage to stand and confidence to speak up about the truth of God's word What is God's word? Yes, it's the Bible. But folks, this is about Jesus. This is about the difference that Christ makes in your life. Can you point to the difference that Christ has made in your life? Can you do it around four things? Do you know about who God is? About who you are as man? About what Christ did? That he is God and he died for our sins. And the response that you've placed your faith in Christ. Do you use scripture? Do you not overcomplicate it? I found that I can talk about God all day long. We still live in an age. You can talk about God in general. It's when you bring up Jesus that people get squirrely. 
And folks, it's not just people that get squirreling. But the scripture says demons tremble at his name. Jesus, for Christians, that is the name that you need to be voicing. Speak of him. The name that's above every name. Keep in mind that Jesus, who he is, the very God-man, and the mission that he paid the penalty for sin. And often we miss this, this mission about the difference that Christ makes. This mission we've lost sight of because we're focused on the here and now. 111 seconds, by the grace of God, you'll all be sitting still here. In 111 minutes, you'll be somewhere else. 111 days elsewhere, 111 months. But there's one level factor. In 111 years, none of you will be sitting here. And you're going to be more alive than you are right now. That's the testimony of Scripture. You are more alive in 111 years than you are right at this moment. And you may not even be aware of it. Because the subtle lie of the enemy is that you're going to live forever looking as good as you do right now. And you do look good. But you're going to be somewhere. And some of us have been, become what Paul Tripp calls eternity amnesiacs. And the people that we drive past, the people that we see on the street, the people that we work with, the person in the cube right next to us in 111 years, they're going to be alive somewhere else. Blind men can be made to see. God opens eyes. Has he opened your eyes? Then there's the Samaritan woman. This is what we'll call the invitational approach. The invitational approach is this. God specializes in picking. It puts on display that God specializes in picking the most unlikely candidates to bring into relationship with himself and to do his divine work. He does the extraordinary in the ordinary life. Some of you sit here today... And you feel like you're either too tall, too short, too skinny, too heavy. You talk funny, look funny, you act funny. And all of those could be true. You may also say, I'm too sinful. And that's where you would be wrong. For God specializes in coming after the most unlikely person. The Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. You may not know it because we've westernized the reading of it. She is the most unlikely candidate. In her day, she had four big things going against her. Well, actually, three big things. And the fourth thing we'll talk about in a minute. She was a Samaritan. She was a woman. And she was living in a moral lifestyle. The very fact that a careful reading of the story shows that she's showing up at the well at noon to find Jesus there, and there's nobody else there. That didn't happen. Women went to the well first thing in the morning in the coolest part of the day because they were carrying these pots a long way. Why is she showing up at noon? Because either she doesn't want to hear the hostility or the quiet whispers of the other women. They know who she is. She knows who she is, and she's certainly an outcast. Yet what she finds at the well that day is this Jesus who cares for her and offers her truth of new life and gives insight into her life, convinces her that he was the Messiah. So what did she do? She left everything behind, and she went and told everybody that she knew, and she invited them to come and see. And some of you, that's the way you are wired. You're more wired to say to a neighbor or friend, you need to come, sit with me at church. Come and see. I'm telling you, it's a huge difference in my life. Come and see. It's an insight into my life. Some of the answers that you're looking for, just come to church. You'll find out that we're just like you. 
And she invited others to experience what she experienced. The testimony of what Christ did for her was something that she couldn't be quiet about. And this is what I want you to see. Just as a reminder, this is a person that could have easily believed this. No one will listen to me. I've made too much a mess of my life. My life is too much of a mess. And Jesus, thank you for quenching my thirst. I'm going home now and I'm going to focus on me and fixing me and learning all about God. And it's about me. But that's not what she does. She's cut loose and she goes and invites others and brings them. Some of you know what it's like to feel like a Samaritan woman. Not literally, but maybe. Maybe you are that individual that makes your way to the well that day and you know what it's like to be desperately thirsty. You know what it's like to be so focused on the here and now that you know something's missing. You know what it's like to have this huge God-sized hole in your life. And you wonder how in the world are you going to get out of the mess that you're in. And Jesus stands in front of you and this is what he says. You look thirsty. I've got true drink. Quench your thirst for eternity. That's what he does. That's what he calls you to. Now this brings us to the second principle. And again, like I said, there's more personalities. Some of you have a servant mentality. By, by doing things like Tabitha, by preparing meals and caring for other people, you have the opportunity to share Christ. But the second principle is what I want you to see. You're going to make an eternal impact when you live obediently. There it is. When you live obediently. And you live obediently this way. You trust God to be God as he sends you to be you. To share that Jesus is God's answer to man's ultimate need. And this is put on display in Acts chapter 8 and uh, chapter 9. And so I'm going to invite you, just for the time we have left, to turn over there to Acts chapter 8 and verse, and chapter 8 and chapter 9. And I want to encourage you, go home and read this. In Acts chapter 8, in the first verse, we are introduced to this guy by the name of Saul. And Saul is a ruling, a person with authority and influence. And he had just given approval to have Stephen stoned. He hates Christians. He is hostile against everything they're standing for. And he is bent on putting a stop to this. So we're introduced to him there. And it says there arose a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And the, and the church was scattered out. The persecution scattered them. And it's an interesting thing is Luke, Luke who wrote Acts introduces us to this guy by the name of Saul. And just then just leaves him. And then turns the, the, the attention back to what happens with the church. We see people miraculously changed. Lives being changed, people coming to Christ, the gospel is being shared. Which is a great reminder to us all that God is not hindered hindered at all by vile hatred for those who cut off people's heads. People are becoming believers in the face of great opposition. It just is what God does. Because God is busy being God. While we are busy just being faithful, obedient witnesses. And so we see that in chapter 8. And then chapter 9 we go back and notice what happens. 
Paul is still breathing threats, chapter 9, verse 1, and murder against the disciples. And so he decides he's going to go to Damascus. He's heard there's believers there. He is going to lay hold of them and he's going to drag them out. He's going to separate families. He's going to kill people and take names. And on his way to Damascus, the Lord blinds him, knocks him down. And says to him, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who am I persecuting? And Jesus responds to him, you are persecuting me, Jesus. And he doesn't regain his sight there. He tells him what to do. Get up and go into Damascus. And wait. Now, if you know the story, the point is this. Many times... We describe Paul as being converted on the road to Damascus. That's not what the Bible says. In fact, Paul talks about in the latter part of Acts is that while he was in Damascus, this guy comes to see him. Do you know his name? His name is Ananias. There are three Ananiases in the Bible. Two of the three are not remembered well. But there is this guy by the name of Ananias. Here he comes. He is a new believer. He's minding his own business. And in Acts chapter 9, look at verse uh, verse 10. There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in, in a vision, Ananias. And he replied, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at that house of Judas... For a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he's praying. He's a seeker. And he has seen in a vision a man by the name of Ananias come in and lay his hands on him that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered. Now, there's an interesting word, this word answered. It's like Ananias and God are in this dialogue. But we miss that this word that is used here is the same word where we get hypocrite. Out of the same word, this root, this uh, krinos. Krinos is a word that has, you're looking at something, something's just not quite right. And Ananias looks at God and says, something's just not quite right here. I know who Paul is, or Saul is, and he's after heads. And I don't want to be one of those heads. Can you imagine? But God sends him. And guess what he does? He obeys and he goes. And his name bears on in the scriptures as a man who went. And see, when we as believers begin to think that it's God's responsibility to do the saving, and it's a byproduct, a bad byproduct, that we hold high the sovereignty of God and that God is in the business of Convicting, yes, yes, yes. But the biblical balance is that we go, go, go. Just as Ananias went, God sent a man. Just like he sent Moses, he sent a man. He sent someone right where he was, right in his hometown. He didn't know where he was, but God told him where and he went. And there's people right around you. God uses people. People around you to connect your life with. People that you come in contact with. And when you embrace you being you and leave the God being God to his role, your life suddenly takes on different perspective. The fruit that will come from your life will bear in, a, in eternity. And frankly, it is the most amazing adventure you'll ever be on. That you are not walking about by chance, but God God has placed people directly in your path, right in your neighborhood, right in your workplace, right around you, for you to tell about the difference that Christ makes. I heard John Piper tell of a couple who dreamed of early retirement. They wanted white sand beaches and seashells, not 
the snow of Minnesota. And the couple worked diligently, and in their 50s, just think about that. If you've ever dreamed of retiring at 50 or 55, this fo- these people made it happen. They dreamed of coffee every morning and walk on the beach. Coffee, beach, coffee, beach. And as they described it, it was not long before every sunset, though amazing, looked very much the same. It was nothing more than a blazing ball of fire falling below the horizon. And they said they heard a tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. That they were living their life in a way that God never intended them to live. Some of you are approaching retirement and it's never dawned on you that God did not intend you just to spend all your time walking on the beach and drinking coffee, looking for seashells. How many seashells can you find? How many footballs can you throw? How many soccer balls can you kick? I mean, come on. There's more. And God has you to be the difference. To be his light. Move out in faith with God being God and you being you. And then there's those of you who may sit here and wonder, is this really true? Is there hope that there's a new life? I know what it's like to make a mess of my life. Maybe that's you. Maybe you know what that feels like at varying levels. And you want to know Who is this Jesus and the difference that he can make? Or maybe you already know and you've not yielded your life. And today you have a sense. The Lord wants you to stop living the way you've lived and turn your eyes to him and embrace him as savior and the director of your life. You need to change your mind. That's what the Bible means when it says repent. Change your mind and change your direction. And you can do that. We talked about this connect form. You want to know more about it? You want to dialogue more? We invite anybody that sits in this room. You want to talk about it more? Fill that out. There's a check mark there that says, I want to know more about Jesus. Somebody from the staff will follow up with you. Believer, as God's people, God intended us to have the courage to stand and the confidence to speak. Because of the mercy, the truth of God's word, and the mercy of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Do you know that mercy? Are you relishing in that mercy? I want to invite you fresh and new to make fresh commitment to that.